0: The Bible says that in the end times Christians will suffer increasing persecution for their faith. That is occurring here today in the United States in many ways. And one of the most blatant is in the form of magazine articles that distort the Bible and treat Christians with contempt. Perhaps the worst violator has been Newsweek magazine. Stay tuned as our special guest Dr. Ron Rhodes responds to the latest Newsweek attack. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy. A program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. Once again this week, our special guest is Dr. Ron Rhodes. Uh, the founder and director of a ministry in Frisco, Texas called Reasoning from the Scriptures. Dr. Rhodes is the author of more than 70 books, most of which are in the field of apologetics or the defense of the faith. I am also glad to have with me our ministry's web minister and co-host of this program, Nathan Jones. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you, Dr. Eggman. Glad to have you on the set always. Well, Nathan and I would like to get your response to some of the outlandish statements that were made by this Newsweek author in this Story that was very long and on the cover of Newsweek magazine, yeah. attacking the Bible and also Christianity. Nathan, why don't you kick it off with one of the statements they made?
1: Sure, well, let's go with one of the first statements. Here is: "This is how it says: it says No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither is the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation—a translation of translations of hand copied copies of copies of copies of copies." And on and on. So, we, you've never read the Bible?
2: You know what? The first thing that comes to my mind when I hear those words is Dan Brown novels. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's not you know the Da Vinci Code is a book that had the same kind of arguments. I
0: think he got his arguments out there. I think he did. The
2: only problem is, I think that the Newsweek article is worse fiction than the Dan Brown book. Yeah. Uh, you know the thing is, th- this article makes it sound like there was a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation and so on and so forth, almost as if it started in Hebrew and got translated into Aramaic, then into Greek, then into Latin, then into, you know, whatever other language that transpired. That is completely false. What happened was, is that the uh, New Testament was translated from Greek manuscripts, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Now here is something really cool to think about. We've got over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 25,000 and many of them date very, very early. For example we've got Vaticanus and Sinaiticus which both date to the 4th century. We've got the um, uh, Chester Beatty papyri, which goes back to the second and third century. We even got one manuscript that goes back to 120 AD, which is one generation separated from the four Gospels. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is accuracy. Yes, and, and we, there's more manuscript evidence than there is for any ancient writing. Well, that's right. You know, consider Plato. Plato predated Christ yes. by a couple of hundred years. The earliest manuscript we have from him is 1,300 years <laughs> later. And our total number of manuscripts is seven. Well,
1: that's like now, Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Don't the copies we have like 700 years or so after? Yeah.
2: We don't even know and, if Homer really wrote it then. And, and with the New Testament we've got 25,000 that go back very, very far. Very close wow. to New Testament times. And here's something else to think about guys. Even if by some freak accident we lost all 25,000 of those manuscripts. Did you know that we could reproduce the entire New Testament except for 11 verses in the writings of the Church Fathers. Because is there's over there's thirty six thousand quotations of the Church Fathers of the New Testament. Wow. So all but eleven verses we could reconstruct accurately if we lost all those twenty-five thousand manuscripts. Now the good news is we haven't lost those manuscripts. Praise We've the got the twenty-five thousand manuscripts plus the writings of the church fathers. Let me tell you, this article doesn't know anything, it doesn't know its end from its beginning. Because you can trust your Bible based upon the real evidence.
1: Welcome back to Christ and Prophecy. Dr. Reagan and I are in the process of interviewing Dr. Ron Rhodes. Ask him to respond to attacks on the Bible and Christianity that were recently published in Newsweek magazine.
0: Ron, let's uh, proceed to a very specific attack that uh, Newsweek made on the Bible. It reads like this In the past 100 years or so, tens of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered dating back centuries. And what biblical scholars, quote unquote, now know is that later versions differ significantly from the earlier ones. In in fact, even copies from the same time periods differ from one another.
2: Well, that's a common claim of liberal critics, and I emphasize that word liberal. You know, the fact is is that in talking about the New Testament manuscripts, I like to go back just a little bit further and begin with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Because that way we can understand Why the accuracy. Are those so
0: important?
2: Well, you know, those scrolls were discovered back in 1947, and one of the really cool things about that is that we came up with two different Isaiah manuscripts that were dated at 125 BC. Now, what's cool about that is that the previous, earliest manuscript that we had of Isaiah was 895 AD. That means they are separated by a thousand years. Now, when you compare the two sets of manuscripts one of the things that you discover real quickly is that they are identical in 95% of the case. And the the 5% variation is mainly misspellings. Not a single doctrine is affected. And that means accuracy. That's a thousand year span and yet you've got that kind of incredible accuracy. Now that brings me to the New Testament. Now, there are differences in individual New Testament manuscripts, and they are called variants. But you see the thing is, even the critical scholars, people like Bart Ehrman who is attacking the New Testament, even they will admit that 99.9% of these have no consequence at all, that mainly it is misspellings. Or occasionally a word might get reversed, it might say Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ as an example. But in no way does it ever affect a single doctrine. Hmm. Now I want to illustrate to you the accuracy of understanding what the original documents of the Bible came up, you know, actually said. And I'm going to do an exercise with you if I could. There is going to be an original document that we no longer have. I've got five copies of it and I'm going to read the five copies to you and you tell me what you think the original said. The first manuscript says, Believe in Jesus Christ for Salvation. The second manuscript says, Believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's identical. The third manuscript says, Believe in Jesus for salvation. The fourth manuscript says, Believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. The fifth <laughs> manuscript says, Believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. See, they all got, mean the same thing. They all mean the same thing. Could you come up with the original? <laughs> of course you could determine the original. That's 95% of the, the, the case in the New Testament manuscripts. It's just like that. In fact, there's only 40 places in the New Testament where scholars have looked at it and have have been more concerned about the the exact reading. And not one of those affects any meaning in the New Testament. Now, I want to tell you something real important here. You know when Jesus and the Apostles quoted from the Old Testament, they didn't quote from actual books written by Moses, or Daniel, Hmm. or Ezekiel, or Jeremiah, or any of those other guys. All that Jesus and the Apostles had were manuscript copies of those books. But guess what? When they quoted from those books, they quoted from them as scripture. They considered those manuscripts as so approximate to the original that they had virtually no hesitation in accepting those manuscripts copies as the Word of God. And
0: I think the reason for the accuracy, of course God was superintending this sure and was. protecting His Word. But if you know anything about how the scribes did this, I mean they considered this to be the Word of God. They treated it as the Word of God. And and when they uh, wrote this they, they had a, a way of counting the letters across and the letters down to make absolutely certain it was correct.
2: That's exactly well, right.
0: They it was a very <laughs>
2: tedious process. And of course that shows itself in the Dead Sea Scrolls yes. when we yeah. compare those copies of the book of Isaiah that we talked about. Okay. Let's go
0: for another one here, Nathan.
1: Okay. Well obviously a God who can create a universe can keep a book going for a while. I would right? think so. <laughs> I would think so. All right. Well the next statement I want to read from Newsweek here it attacks the concept of the Trinity. And it okay. goes the Trinity, the belief that Jesus and God are the same, and with the Holy Spirit, are a single entity, is a fundamental yet deeply confusing tenet. So, where does this—the clear declaration of God and Jesus as part of the triumvirate—appear in the Greek manuscripts? And they declare nowhere. You
2: know, this kind of sounds like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they <laughs> yeah. have these same kind of yeah. arguments. So, so, so far we've seen he's got stuff from Dan Brown. Now we're <laughs> seeing he's getting stuff from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Anything but
1: the but, Bible, right?
2: Anything from the Bible. That's mm. right. Anybody who has studied the Bible could answer this. I think my kids who just you know, went to uh, you know, Christian schools, they could answer that very easily. Let me just answer it this way. First of all, the reality that he can't understand the Trinity doesn't mean anything to me. Exactly. Do you really expect a finite being to be able to understand the infinite God? If he could he wouldn't be God. That's exactly right. And uh, you know, in terms of the actual biblical evidence for this, let me just quickly give you five planks. The first plank is that there is one God. And that's something that we see from Genesis to Revelation. It is a thread that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. There is one God. Secondly, the Father is called God all throughout the Bible. Nobody disputes that. Third, Jesus is called God on many, many occasions. He's called God in John 1.1. He's called the Great I Am of Exodus 3.14 in John 8.58. He and the Father have the same divine nature in John 10.30. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.9. Thomas, Thomas says, John 20.28, 20, my Lord and my God is exactly right. Uh, I am the first and the last, Jesus says, Revelation 1.8. My point being that Jesus is God just like the Father is. He has the same titles as the Father. The Holy Spirit is God, that's number four. The Holy Spirit is called God. After all he's called the Spirit of God all throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. He has all the attributes of God. And in Acts chapter 5, lying to the Holy Spirit is equated to lying with God. So, what have we seen so far? There is one God, the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And the fifth plank is that there is three in oneness within the deity. Now this guy wanted the Greek, so here we go. Okay. Matthew 28:19. <laughs> Jesus says, Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. In the original Greek, the word name is singular, indicating one God. But also in the Greek, there is a definite article in front of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, let's be honest. In English, definite articles don't matter that much. But in the original Greek, definite articles Absolutely. mean everything. That's right. And those definite, art-
0: definite articles distinguish the three persons in the one name of God. Well, here's an interesting affirmation that's made in the Newsweek article, and it's one that I've never heard before. It says, it is the universal opinion, the universal opinion Everybody of believes Biblical it. scholars that both First Timothy and Second Peter are forgeries. What doctors was the uh, what, uh, what yeah, professor? Of the five guys it,
2: he asked on the street. Did this he stream, call you? Uh, I think it was Jekyll and Hyde. If <laughs> I recall. Uh, well, that's just nonsense. And, and you know these guys offer some arguments that they think are just killer arguments yeah. for saying that Paul didn't write First Timothy. And you, you know what the arguments are? No, I don't. Uh, first of all, the style of writing is a little different in 1 Timothy, so Paul couldn't have written it. Not only that, Paul likes to talk about big theological themes in his books, and 1 Timothy doesn't have any big theological themes, and so therefore Paul could not have written That's it. That's <laughs> Well, they'll also go on to say that they think it was written in the 2nd century, and if, if, if 1 Timothy was written in the 2nd century, Paul couldn't have written it because he died in the 1st century. And they say that because the error that uh, Paul was dealing with in First Timothy, they say, was second-century Gnosticism. Oh, you know. Now this is the kind of stuff they offer. Now let's mm-hmm. just evaluate that real quick. First of all, let's look at the style. In Romans, Paul is writing theology about justification and sanctification to the church at Rome. Real heavy stuff. When he's writing to Timothy, his young intimate friend who started up a church. He's writing about one he's writing like to one of his little pals. That's right. One of his close, intimate friends. Obviously the style's gonna be a little bit different. And really, there's no theological themes in First Timothy? That's what you're bring to the table Newsweek? Really? The fact is that what you find in 1 Timothy is a discussion of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Is there any bigger theological theme than the, the atonement of Christ? The biggest. And he also talks about Christ being the mediator. And by the way, 1 Timothy's not dealing with 2nd uh, century Gnosticism. It is dealing with 1st century Jewish legalism.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, these guys got it wrong from beginning to end.
0: What about Second Peter?
2: Well, in Second Peter this is another one of those comical things where they are just not reading the text very carefully. The reason they say that 2 Peter does not uh, give any evidence of being written by Peter is because the style is completely different from 1 Peter. If you look at it, it's got different words and different style than 2 Peter. They're, they're just different. Have they even read 1 Peter? If you read 1 Peter and you come to chapter 5, verse 12, what does Peter say there? Peter says this letter has actually been written down for me by my scribe Sylvanus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he was a, He was a stylist, he was an expert in Greek linguistics that wrote this down for Peter, and then Peter checked it over to make sure it was exactly right, and then it went out to the churches now, in second Peter, Peter didn't use a stylus. he wrote it by himself, and he 's a little more sloppy than the guy who wrote <laughs> it first. Right? Yeah. but both of them came from Peter. But my point to you is that these arguments are ridiculous when they try to argue. But see the the sad thing is is that most Christians are too illiterate to to even know this stuff. And so there is a lot of Christians who will believe the lies that are set forth in this article.
0: Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. Nathan Jones and I are interviewing Dr. Ron Rhodes, getting his responses to some vicious attacks on the Bible that were recently printed in a cover story in Newsweek magazine.
1: I'm going to ask you a very hot topic that Uh-oh. we get a lot of viciousness from. But
0: well, I'm in my red chair waiting. You're for your red
1: it. chair. All right, you're ready for the it's hot seat. It's good scene. and hot. Okay. okay. Well, let's read. The condemnation of homosexuality in First Timothy is a modern invention, since the word homosexual did not exist until 1,800 years after First Timothy was written.
2: You know, it's hard to know where to begin in answering some, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Uh, it is true that in the history of the English language, that the word homosexual was a fairly recent development. It's a compound word meaning same sex. There's a sign of the times same. right
1: there. Recent development.
2: Well, it is, but the thing of it is, is that that's been presented as a smokescreen argument to do away with the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality. I'm sorry, that won't work. Mm-hmm. That won't work. In First Timothy, the Greek word that is used there. If you look in the most accurate Greek lexicons, I'm talking about lexicons like Bauer, Art, and Gingrich standards, uh, is that the word means men who engage in sexual relations with other men. That's what the word means. Now whether or not you want to say the whole phrase or use the word homosexual, the meaning of 1 Timothy 1.10 is the same. And that is that God is condemning homosexuality. And I might mention to you that what Paul says there in 1 Timothy 1.10 Is in perfect perfect keeping with what he says elsewhere. For example, in Romans 1 where he talks about unnatural affections between men and men, and unnatural affections between women and women. And Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says that homosexuals will not inherit the Kingdom of God. Now to be fair a number of different kinds of sinners are mentioned in that context. Mm -hmm. So we are not ganging up on homosexuals. But that is one of a number of sins that can keep you out of the Kingdom of God. And the interesting thing there is that uh, Paul says to the Corinthians right there in 1 Corinthians 6 some of you used to be homosexuals but you've been de- delivered by the power of the Lord Jesus and you've been sanctified that's right you see and so I have to say even though uh, you know I am certainly wishing for all homosexuals to be delivered from their lifestyle and I'm not trying to come across as mean-spirited or unfair or narrow-minded or any of those things we must be clear on what the Bible actually teaches on this because eternal souls are at stake. We need the truth. And what we need today is for Christians to be bold enough to tell the truth in the name of Jesus. And this is what Scripture teaches on homosexuality. And if I might add, Scripture also speaks strongly against same-sex marriage. Certainly.
1: Uh, Matthew uh, 19, I think particularly when people say that Jesus never talked about homosexuality, he says, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus himself by defining what marriage is was saying that homosexuality, adultery, fornication, all these things are not the definition of marriage.
2: Well, that's right. And of course Jesus is pointing back to Genesis chapter 2 where marriage is is invented. God is the one who invented it. And as the inventor of marriage, he's the one who determined the genders that participate in it. It's yes. a male and a female, and of course, you see that throughout the rest of the Bible. First Corinthians seven, for example, where Paul is giving instructions on husbands and wives meeting each other's needs, he says the man must meet the needs of the woman, and the woman must meet the needs of the of the man. You know, it's a very clear gender distinction between the two. And I could I could give a lot more on this, but uh, what's very clear from Scripture is that homosexuality is a sin and by virtue of that fact same sex
0: marriages are a sin as well and so is adultery and so is fornication that's exactly the bible right. makes it very clear the only moral sex is that between a husband and a wife right mm-hmm. it's exactly. just as clear as it can be
2: that's right and you know i think that too often one of the problems that we do see in the church to be fair is that there'll be many individuals speaking out against homosexuality when they haven't dealt with their own
0: Problems. You yes. Well, you know I saw an interview on Fox News not long ago where Robert Jeffers, the pastor of First Baptist Church in yes. Dallas was confronting a homosexual advocate. And uh, the homosexual turned to him and said, you know the way you are talking you make it sound like a heterosexual relationship is superior to a homosexual relationship. He said, that is exactly right. He said, well I don't think that. Uh, prove it. He said, oh, I can prove it very simply. You wouldn't exist if there were a <laughs> n- heterosexual uh, so, if your yeah. you know if your parents weren't married, right? I mean, yeah. that, it's that's just as point. simple as it can be. It's a good point. Okay, I uh, wanted to uh, uh, give uh, bring up another point that's made in this. Uh, from the beginning of this article to the end of this article, there is a constant, unrelenting attack. On what is called inerrancy. Let me just give you one quote. Nowhere in the Gospels or Acts of Epistles or Apocalypses does the New Testament say it is the inerrant Word of God. It couldn't. The people who authored each section had no idea they were composing the Christian Bible, and they were long dead before what they wrote was voted by members of political and theological committees to be the New Testament.
2: Well again where do you begin in answering all that? Uh, first of all let's recognize that it wasn't committees who determined the Word of God. They recognized that the Bible was the Word of God. Even in New Testament times the New Testament books were already being recognized as the Word of God. In 2 Peter 3.16 Peter acknowledges that everything Paul wrote was, on the word, was the Word of God using the same Word for Scripture as his use of the Old Testament Scriptures. And in the Jewish context at that and we also find out that uh you know um in uh uh first uh, Timothy 5:18 uh, we find a reference to Luke's gospel as well as the book of Deuteronomy and they're both collectively called scripture
0: even in his lifetime people recognized Paul was writing scripture that's right that's why Paul had
2: his uh, works read in a number of churches because they were scripture. Now the doctrine of inerrancy grows out of the doctrine of inspiration. What does that mean,
0: the word inerrancy?
2: It means without error. Okay. It is, there, there is no mistakes, there is no error in the original documents penned by the original writers of scripture. Now we need to be careful about this day because some evangelicals have, to, have tried to redefine inerrancy. They have tried to redefine it to mean that the Bible is inerrant, inerrant in the sense that there is no intentional deceits. Now, wait a minute. Based <laughs> on that definition, everything you've ever written is inerrant.
0: <laughs> and everything
2: I've ever written is inerrant. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's not
0: what the Bible means. If it's the Word of God, it has to be inerrant. That's How can right. God make an error? That's
2: exactly right. And that, that really gets back to the doctrine of uh, inspiration. Because the word inspired doesn't mean inspiring to read like Shakespeare. <laughs> it means that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. God is the source of the Scriptures. Now, the great verse to go, there, to, uh, go to is 2 Peter one twenty one. Which says that the biblical writers were born along by the Holy Spirit or, or driven along it's a very strong word in the original Greek, and the only other place where that word occurs is in acts twenty seven where Paul is on that big ship and he's there with a bunch of other men, and this big storm comes up, and the wind is just really picking up, and these sailors are trying to control where the ship's going, but they couldn't do it because the wind was driving them along that's the same word used of the Holy Spirit driving. The biblical authors to write what they wrote. So yes, humans were involved, but the Holy Spirit drove them along. Now here's what I'm building up to, God does not err. The Scriptures come from God. Therefore, the Scriptures do not err. And all throughout the Scriptures we do see indications for inerrancy. You know, Scripture cannot be broken, for example, Jesus says. What did Jesus continually tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees about their tradition? He says, You guys are constantly going back to your tradition and ignoring the Word of God, but it's the Word of God that's authoritative. Where did Mm -hmm. Jesus go with his confrontation with the devil? How did he defeat the devil? Scripture. It was Scripture, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. On and on we could go, but you see, what we see in the New Testament is that the Scriptures speak with the voice of God, with the authority of God, and the Scriptures have the authority of God because they came from God, you see. And so uh, these guys that talk about contradictions and so forth haven't really studied the issue. Now, I want to tell you something, the Bible may have apparent contradictions, especially in the four Gospels, they may have apparent contradictions, but not genuine contradictions. It's truer to say that the Gospels have differences. Now, listen to me on this, if all four Gospels were identical,
0: what would the critics say?
1: <laughs> <laughs> One guy wrote them all. They are copying <laughs> from each other. same
0: way if, a pers- if you've got five witnesses saying exactly the same That's thing in right. the courtroom. They are going to say, collusion, you know been rehearsed. collusion, collusion. <laughs>
2: I'm glad that we've got four Gospels that have different details, sure. but they don't contradict. You know I used to uh, have a friend that was a policeman. He would write up reports at the, uh, the corner where there was an accident. Everybody had a different report. And there were different things that were shared, but by taking all those things together he could develop a composite report. In the same way we look at the different details provided in the four Gospels and then we understand that we can build a composite account of what took place in the life of Jesus. But it is real important to understand that a partial account does not mean a faulty account. It is real important to understand that faulty human interpretations are not to be equated with God's infallible revelation. Human interpretations can conflict, but God's revelation does not conflict.
0: If someone were to ask you what you consider to be the greatest evidence that the Bible really is the Word of God what would you say?
2: Biblical prophecy without a hesitation. (laughs) This (laughs) This has such a powerful impact on me when I was a a youngster, I was a teenager, and at the time I was involved in show business of all things working in Hollywood. And I I came up to, I I was backstage working with Shirley Boone one day, this is Pat Boone's wife, and they were talking about prophecy. I never heard of this stuff before. I never heard about the Second Coming, or the Rapture, or the Tribulation. Long story short, biblical prophecy proved to me that the Bible really is the Word of God, because only God knows the beginning from the end.
0: And what other book in the world contains? Fulfilled
2: prophecy. I mean there are
0: hundreds of prophecies fulfilled.
2: Uh, When you look at the Old Testament prophecies of the coming, and see this is what got my attention. When I saw that all those prophecies had been fulfilled literally to the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I in the New Testament... I mean, nobody can do that. And no we're not just
0: people. talking about
2: messianic prophecy. They are yeah, t- right. prophecies
0: about individual cities, towns, nations, oh, absolutely. empires.
2: Absolutely, sure. And so, what I did was, I said, you know, since this is from God, you know, I'm going to turn my life over to the Lord. I'm dumping Hollywood, and I'm going to seminary.
0: I don't <laughs> know. For some reason, I just have this difficult
2: difficulty imagining you in Hollywood. you <laughs> tired, no Imagine thirty years ago. You know, imagine me as a teenager. You know. The fact is, is that God did a radical work in my life. And it's really good news because if God can change me, <laughs> God can change anybody.
0: Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. As we bring our program this week to an end, I want to give our guest Dr. Ron Rhodes an opportunity to tell you how you could get in touch with him and his ministry. Ron? Well, you can just contact us at our website, which is RonRhodes.org, R-O-N-R-H-O-D-E-S.org. We have lots of free stuff. So, stop by and visit. Well, Ron, we have really appreciated you being on our program. You have been a great blessing as always. And folks, uh, if you want to get in touch with him, go to that website and Last week we interviewed Dr. Rhodes about the newest book that he's written called The Eight Great Debates of Bible Prophecy. And if you missed that interview you can find it on our website at lambline.com. And in a moment our announcer will tell you how you can get a copy of the book.
1: Well folks that's our program for this week. We hope it's been a blessing to you and we hope you'll be back with us again next week. Until then this is Nathan Jones speaking for Dr. Reagan and myself saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Dr. Ron Rhodes' latest book is indispensable for understanding the major controversies surrounding the interpretation of end-time Bible prophecies. The book is titled, The Eight Great Debates of Bible Prophecy, and it specifically addresses the following issues. Should prophecy be interpreted literally or symbolically? Are Israel and the church separate and distinct entities in prophecy? What do the signs of the times tell us about the timing of the Lord's return? Which view of the rapture's timing is correct? How are we to understand the book of Revelation? Is the Antichrist a real person or a symbol for something? Dr. Rhodes addresses all these questions in an easy-to-understand manner, and he bases all his responses on Scripture. This book can be yours for a donation of $20 or more, including shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen or place your order through our website at lamblion.com. Another book that can help you understand Bible prophecy is Dr. Reagan's comprehensive survey titled God's Plan for the Ages. The book runs over 400 pages about every aspect of prophecy. And each chapter stands on its own, so you can scan the table of contents, find a topic you're interested in, and turn to that chapter and start reading. This book can also be yours for a gift of $20 or more, including shipping. Or you can place your order through our website at lamblion.com.